and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Uh, if you do not have a copy of the scriptures with you, the text is in the back of your order of worship for this morning. We also have some Bibles on that table just outside the back door. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that with you, and, uh, and that will be yours for as long as you need it. Uh, Genesis chapter 14, we're continuing here in Genesis. Remember that Genesis uh, has really three parts. We, we talk about all of the Scripture uh, we say that, that the narrative, the story that all of the Scripture tells is the story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. God has made all things, including us. We have rebelled against Him and come under His wrath and judgment, but He is saving us from our sin and one day will finally completely save us and make us new, whole again. So that's the, the, the story. Every part of Scripture is, is telling us about these things, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And you have those first three right here in Genesis. Genesis tells us the story of creation. It tells us of the fall, and then it tells us of redemption, even as it anticipates that consummation. And once you get out of the, the narrative of the creation and the fall and, uh, and what happens immediately after the fall with Cain and Abel and the flood, we come into that part of the book of Genesis that uh, tells the story of the patriarchs beginning with Abraham. And that story of Abraham begins with God calling him out from his place, sending him to a place that he promises to give to Abraham, and, and making covenant with Abraham. We saw that in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, where God promised, I will make a covenant with you. Uh, and he promises that through Abraham all the world will be blessed, uh, and he promises to bless those who bless Abraham. All of that matters because as we come to Genesis 14 this morning, we've, we've only been introduced to Abraham a couple of chapters ago. He's going by the name Abram in the text here. God very soon is going to, to change his name to Abraham. Uh, and here in the narrative, we're going to, to see Abraham functioning as a type of Christ, anticipating Christ, a sort of uh, uh, example that looks forward to Christ who will come. And there's not only Abram acting as a type of Christ in the text this morning, we have his nephew, Lot. And Lot functions a lot like us. Lot here in this narrative, we're going to see as we begin to, to unpack the narrative, that Lot represents us, people, in the world. Will we be of the world or not? And finally, we see the kings that are at war with one another in this passage that represent the world in which we live. We gain insight into this morning's passage in particular. As I was, I was working through the passage this week, I just I kept thinking of Christ in John 17 and what we call the high priestly prayer shortly before Christ goes into uh, the, uh, his being uh, betrayed and crucified. Christ is in that prayer speaking of his disciples and by extension speaking of us and, and he says that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And I, the, the entire passage here in Genesis 14 this morning uh, is, is a sort of historical event that, that reveals these things to us. We see Abram and Lot in the world. We see Lot living as though he were of the world. But thanks be to God, he delivers us from these things. And so we're going to see Abram acting as a type of of Christ, anticipating 
Christ. It's a historical narrative. These are real people, and this is real history, but by it, God is revealing to us deeper truths. It's not there just for our historical curiosity. God is revealing how we are to live in this world and not live in it. He's revealing who he is and how he works and what work he is about. I'm reminded as I think about this of the the catechism, uh, the shorter catechism that asks us, what do the scriptures principally teach? The, The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Now listen, I, if, if you don't come from a, a tradition that uses catechism, if our, our catechism is something new to you, this question and answer way of learning what it is that the Bible teaches us, I, I want to encourage you in your own Bible study that these two things become fantastic ways to guide you in your Bible study. That is, when you open up your Bible, something we struggle with too often today is we say, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, one very helpful answer is ask the question, what does this passage teach me about God? And what does this passage teach me about how I am to live in the world? Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And so we we see that this morning, that there is this history that we're being told here, but what's really happening, as always, every time we open up God's word, is that God is revealing to us through that word who he is and what he's doing and what he's called us to do, how he's called us to live. We're going to see that this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read Genesis 14, 1 through uh, 16. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we know that even as we come to this word, uh, that we are fallen, uh, that though you are redeeming us, we are still at war with the flesh. Our minds are not uh, perfect in their, their ability to discern things, and if it were not for your Holy Spirit at work in the reading and preaching of this word, it would be of no value to us whatsoever. And so I thank you, Father, that you have promised to overcome a weak preacher. You have promised to overcome sinful hearts and weak minds. And this morning to accomplish all that you intend to accomplish through the reading and preaching of your word. And so we rejoice in it and look forward to it as we come under this word today. Shape us, Father, into the image of Christ, we pray. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Genesis 14, beginning in verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar... Arioch, king of Elisar, Shador Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shador Laomer, but in the, 19th, or in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorla Omer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, and Imim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Inmeshpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hetzetzan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Imraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and the 
kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, uh, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sometimes when we read a passage like that, it's hard to, to track the narrative because of the, the names that are, are in there, particularly as a reader having to focus on the names. Uh, it's a simple narrative, though. One group of kings rebelled against another group of kings, and that other group of kings came to enforce their authority over them, and there was war. Lot is caught in the middle and belongs to the losing side. And so he is caught up uh, together with all of his household and taken off into slavery. Abram finds out what's happening and goes after these kings, defeats them, and brings back Lot and everything else that was taken by these kings. It's a pretty simple narrative this morning. And as I've said, what I want to do with this narrative is, is ask questions like, what does this tell us about God? And what does this tell us about ourselves and who we are and how we are to live in the world? And what we see in this pattern all over this passage is, uh, is that, uh, that teaching of Christ in his prayer in John 17 that we are in the world, but not to be of the world. And we see Abram functioning as a type of Christ. And so those are the things we're going to consider this morning. First, that we are in the world. This deserves as uh, an opportunity for us to consider it and pause this truth that we are in the world. It seems simple, but there's more to it. Now, we are not of the world. Our second point this morning, we are not of the world. What does it mean to be of the world and to not be of the world? And finally, that Christ delivers us. Christ saves us from the world. Christ saves us from the world. So much of what we need to recognize in this passage this morning is that Abram and Lot are in the world. That is, the world is fallen under, un, and under God's judgment, but uh, he has not yet come and delivered us from that. We're not merely in a world, but we are in the world, this world, a fallen world. When Jesus says in his prayer that we are in the world, he's not just describing our physical location. The world in that case is understood to be a fallen place. For us, a foreign place. It may seem obvious to us. We are humans. We are created by God. God created the world and placed us in it. How could it then be foreign? And that is because the world that God created that was intended to serve him and to be his is in rebellion against him. And what he's promised to do is to come back one day and destroy it and make it anew. Got those, those beautiful words of Christ from Revelation. See, I make all things new. And because that's what's happening, that's the truest reality in all of history. Because of that, 
Though we are human, made by God and placed in this world, it is true, and we must understand it, that this world is not our home. We are not native to this particular world. We are native, rather, to the world that God will make when Jesus Christ comes again. Nonetheless, though God is doing this work, though he's told us that this is the work he's doing, and though so much of that work, the very foundation for it, all of the substance of that work is in Jesus Christ in his first coming, he hasn't taken us out of this world. He specifically there in that John 17 prayer says, I I don't ask you to take them out of the world. And so God has left us in this world. We are, like Abram in this passage, strangers in a strange land. Abram is in the promised land. That land has been promised to him, but it's not yet been given to him. So he continues to live as a foreigner in that land, a sort of squatter, if you will, a traveler who has paused in this place. And inasmuch as that's Abram's story here, it's our story in the world and in history. God has promised that he is, in a sense, that already and not yet that we talk about. He is remaking this world, and a day is coming when he will finish that work completely. When this new heavens and new earth will be brought into existence and will be the only reality. We are in the world. That is to say, we have been left in the world. Not because God does not care about us. Not because God is not powerful enough to take us out of the world. But because God has an intention in leaving us in the world. And that's our first application this morning. We must live as light in this world. We must recognize that, that God has not taken us out of the world. He's left us here, and he did so for a purpose. We're not in this fallen world by accident. It's, it's not that God can't rescue us from the world or isn't willing to do so, but that, it has not, that the time has not yet come, and he's left us here for a purpose now. Even as Abram is a type of Christ but is not Christ himself. We are types of Christ. We are called to engage in works of deliverance. We're going to look at it more carefully before we're done this morning. Abram is delivering Lot and everyone else from that trial, that tribulation, that slavery that they are being sent off to. And listen, there's certainly a sense in which Abram is a type of Christ He anticipates the work that Christ will do, and the work that Christ does, only Christ can do. But we have been sent out into the world to tell the world about Christ. You may have heard it before, but Christian means little Christ. We are to go out, and though we cannot do the the actual saving work that Christ did, we are engaged in saving work. This is so important, and and I want to, to say it as clearly as I can. There is one reason alone that God has left us in this world. And that is to be light and salt and to tell the world about Jesus Christ and the salvation that is ours in him. Now, if you're not doubting what I just said, you weren't listening You should be sitting there thinking, there's got to be some other reason he left us in this world. 
There's not. There's many other reasons God is saving us. Ultimately, God is saving us for his glory, and that's also why he's left us in the world. But listen, this hiatus, if you will, God having done what is necessary for salvation, but not yet bringing all of that salvation to bear, has a purpose. And that purpose is singular. That purpose is that we would tell others about Christ. Now listen, that's not just my own deduction. John 17, in his high priestly prayer, listen to what Christ says. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. Do you see that? In the middle of the high priestly prayer, in the middle of Christ having this this conversation with the Father in which he acknowledges that we are in the world, and he acknowledges that this is not an ideal thing from from a a temporal perspective, he acknowledges that there, there might be some desire to come out of the world. He says, I don't ask you to take them out of the world. Just while they're in the world, protect them from the evil one. But I've given them my word, and I have sent them out. And even as I was sent, so they have been sent. Listen, it sounds like it's, it's a, a bold claim to say that we are sent into the world as Christ came. And we, we do. We must acknowledge that Christ's saving work is ultimately a unique work in all of history. But we do participate in that work inasmuch as we are sent into the world as he was sent. If it was not for the mission of being sent into the world, there would not be a, a delay between Christ's first and second coming. That's why the last 2,000 years have happened And whatever years remain before God sends Christ back, that's why these years are here. This is why the session here at All Saints is so determined that we will be found faithful to call and to equip for evangelism. There are different ways that individual Christians engage in the work, but we must all be engaged in the work. We must all ask the question, how have I been called and equipped to live in this world, taking this out, light and salt to the world, going about the mission that we've been given and the time in which we've been given to do it. Abram recognizes this in a sense as he goes and delivers, rescues Lot. He's both a type of Christ in that very unique work that Christ engages in in salvation, but also a type of us as he goes in the world out to save. We must live as light in that world. We live in the world. What does that mean? It means we we have been left by God in this fallen world. Why? In order to to take the message out to that world. In a sense, as you've heard us preach before, even recently, it's a fulfillment of that very first command to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. We engage in that faithfully when we take the gospel to others and the dead are brought to life and the kingdom is populated by those 
who know Christ. Second, this morning, we are not of the world. What does it mean? Why does Christ use that language in John 17? And how do we see it here in this morning's text? Lot is of the world. He's living as though he were of the world. To be of the world is to belong to the world. To belong to it in a native sense. To be of the world is to be born from the world and to belong to the world. And this is why Christ says that we are not of the world, even as he is not of the world. Though, again, we are human, though he has created us and placed us in this world, and he made this world, as I said earlier, we do not belong to it. We are not native here, but are foreigners. What does that mean? It, it means that our, our source, the life that belongs to us, has come from God. The people to whom we belong are the people of God, those who are not in rebellion against God, but gladly serving Him and worshiping Him, acknowledging that He is the Creator of all things and the only Redeemer of God's elect, the only Savior of those who are in need of salvation and being saved. This is what it means not to be of the world, that we don't look to the world to take our cues about how we are to live, that we don't look to the world to answer questions of identity. I don't look to the world and ask, who am I? I look to God's word and I ask, who am I? And God tells me in his word who I am and how I am to live in the world. Last week we read as God told Abram to lift up his eyes and he showed Abram not what is, but what will be. He said, I'm going to give all of this to you. What God showed Abram was his true home. As the author of Hebrews says, a city whose builder and maker is God. This world, such as it is, is not our native home. How then are we to live in it? Well, we see two examples of that this morning. We see Abram and we see Lot. Abram knows himself to be a foreigner and a stranger. Everything about the text suggests this. He acknowledges that the land that he lives on does not belong to him. He recognizes that he is, is right now a person without a home, but he knows the promises of God, and he is seeking to live according to those promises. Abram's not perfect. We've already seen him make one mistake. He's going to make more before we're done with his narrative. But he knows God. He knows the promises of God. And he's living increasingly, as we'll see, according to those promises. Lot, however, immerses himself in this world. I don't know if you've ever paused long enough to think about Lot, to be puzzled by Lot. Lot's not a part of the covenant community. He's not an offspring of Abraham. Here in the text, Lot is a a nephew, he's a family member. But it's interesting, uh, we read recently in Genesis that Abram and Lot had to go their separate ways. In preparing this week and seeing the the trouble that Lot finds himself in, trouble that the text wants us to recognize, because even last week, do you remember, as we were reading about Abram and Lot separating, it kept throwing in that editorial comment, Sodom and Gomorrah were very wicked, Sodom and Gomorrah hadn't been destroyed yet. It keeps telling us about the character of the people and the place that Lot chooses to go and to live in and to take as his space. 
And this morning in the text, we see him getting caught up into their wars, carted off into slavery. And, and the thought that I could not get past this week with Lot was why, in last week's text, when Abram said, we're too big, we can't live together, our, our folks are fighting, and you need to find someplace else to go, and pick your place, and wherever you go, I'll go someplace different. Why? Lot doesn't say to Abram, where can I go? You have the words of life. Why does Lot not say to Abram, please, no, above all things, take everything that's mine. Take it all, just let me remain in your house. God has made promises to you and your household, and I would be in that household at any cost. But Lot doesn't say that. Lot looks up, looks out over the land, picks the greenest land, and goes out into that land. And we see this morning the consequences of that decision. And there are going to be even worse consequences for Lot as we continue to read about Lot in the weeks to come. Some that Pastor Nathan and I have, have jokingly argued about who's going to have to preach that passage, right? It's going to get very dark for Lot. Lot is, is living as one who is of the world. Now, he knows Abram. He has a relationship with Abram. He presumably is one who would bless Abram, and as such, he's receiving these sort of peripheral blessings. Temporally speaking, in the narrative, the, the circumstances that Lot finds himself in are circumstances in which even in trouble, he has one who will save, one who is powerful, but Lot is living. I, I think the, uh, the best way to kind of capture what Lot's doing here and how he's living, Lot's living as one who comes to church on Sunday but doesn't actually believe the gospel. He's, he's a member of a church, so to speak. He gets all the benefits of the fellowship lunches and the people who know him and greet him on Sunday morning and who will bring meals when he's in the hospital, and who will help him when he needs help paying a bill. He's deriving all of these worldly, temporal benefits. But he doesn't know Christ. He's not living in the world as one who belongs to Christ. We'll see in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that even, even as the fire begins to fall, Lot can't quite get himself to give up the world to gain salvation. Lot is an example of what it looks like to live in the world. We must recognize the world in which we live. And that's our application for this morning for the second point. We must recognize the world in which we live. It's not a world that recognizes God's authority. It's not a world that has the truth and rejoices in that truth. It does not love God and worship God and serve him. It's a world in rebellion. It's a world in which unnatural things appear to be natural. How we live is always going to be informed by something or someone. We take the manners and the habits to ourselves of the community in which we live. Things as fundamental as our accent and our vocabulary. You know, we, we jokingly will compare the way we say things 
you know, in the south we have Yol, although there's, in the mountains, there's uh, Yuns, right? Uh, Leslie and I went to school at East Tennessee State University where the locals would use Yuns to describe a collective second person, right? And I understand there's some, some, some place up in New England that does the same thing, very interesting. We, we take these things on unquestioningly, don't we? If you grew up in the mountains of East Tennessee, you just say Yuns. That's just how you say it. It would never occur to you that there might be another way to say it or that that, that might not be the best way to say it. I'm not making a value judgment for our East Tennesseans in the room. It would never occur to you that there might be something other if you never left the mountains of East Tennessee and heard somebody say, y'all, or use guys, right? Or any of the other second plural problems that we have in English because it's a, a mutt language that we speak. You'd never, it, it wouldn't occur to you. Listen, brothers and sisters, in the same way, we live in a world where everything around us, we are immersed in this world and its value system. And if we do not consciously, intentionally recognize that we live in such a world and that we are not of that world, that this world is not ours, we are not from it, we are not of it, but we belong to Christ. If we don't recognize that there is a difference here and pursue truth with respect to who we are and how we live in God's word and among God's people, we will be informed by another. And we already have this problem, don't we? That our own hearts are inclined to think and act and live and speak as though we belong to the world. So this war is happening inside of us as the, war, as the spirit and the flesh are at war with one another and we live all week long in a world that doesn't recognize God and does not submit to him and would gladly encourage us not to either. And it's easy to think of obvious ways that we recognize the falsehoods in the world. But brothers and sisters, there are a nearly infinite number of subtle ways in which the world suggests that this is just how it is. And this is how we are to live. And this is who we are and who we, how we are to think of ourselves. What does it look like to live as those who are not of the world? It is to reject the idea that we belong to this world, that we are from this world, and that we are to live as this world lives and calls us to live. Instead, we are called to live according to God's word. So we are in the world, and we have an obligation as those who belong to God in the world to be going out into the world with the, the good news of the gospel, with this message that there is another world, the kingdom of God. And even as we do so, we have to recognize the temptation to live according to this world's standards, according to this world's norms, and to recognize that those are not the same norms as we find in God's word. In fact, they are contrary to, opposed to, the way God's word calls us to live. Children, little ones, you, you go to school every day or you, you spend time with your neighbors, the children in the homes around you. 
And you already, if you will think carefully about it, recognize this very simple thing. That the way you live at home and what you believe or being taught is right and wrong is different from what's being taught to the people that you know at school and in the neighborhood around you. And you have this choice to make all the time, don't you? Will I believe my parents when they tell me what's right and wrong or will I believe my friends? That choice is a choice that you have for the rest of your life. And your parents, because they know Christ, what they're telling you is right and wrong, one would hope, is according to God's word. Listen to your parents, listen to God's word, live as God's word calls us to live. Finally this morning, Jesus Christ saves us from the world. Jesus Christ saves us from the world. I want to close this morning by considering the greatest truth in today's passage, the most important thing that we must see, and that is that Abraham anticipates Christ. He's what we call a type of Christ. Uh, and what we mean by type is not kind, a kind of Christ. We mean he is a model. He's a pattern. He fits a pattern that looks forward to Christ. We begin to recognize this when we see that Abram has rescued Lot. Rescue is at the heart of the work of Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Right there at the very fall itself, God says to the serpent, which I think is interesting. I'm always tempted to turn those words around so that he's, he's talking to Eve. He's not. He's talking to the serpent. And he says to the serpent, I'm going to rescue my people. This little bond you all have created, I'm going to break it. You've stolen them, and I'm going to steal them back. That's what Abram's doing here. It's, it's a sort of, uh, in its own way, in its own historical context, Abram is, is, Lot has been stolen. The world has carried Lot away into slavery, and Abram is going to bring him back. He does this, of course, by the power of God. He does this according to God's blessing. And in so doing, Abram is already working out in history the promise that the nations will be blessed through him and that those who bless him will be blessed. So we see that Abram rescues Lot. We also have to remember that Abram's not just any person, but that he's the father of the covenant he, and, and the head of a covenant people. It's not just any person who's rescuing Lot, but it's the one person in the world that God has said to this person, Abram. I'm going to make your name and your family great in the world, and through you I will bless every family on earth. It's a covenant head through whom God does these things, and it's no street fight among a few people who've maybe had too much to drink. Abram prevails over kings and kingdoms. In order to save Lot, Abram must defeat these kings who have themselves already defeated kings and kingdoms. And Abram is made to appear as one who is above all of them in power. That, that idea is going to be continued into next week's text where one of these kings attempts to make Abram rich and Abram says, no, you are not going to be the one that makes me rich. I don't need you and I don't need your wealth. 
Abram rescues Lot. He does so as a covenant head. He does so by prevailing over kings and kingdoms. And he doesn't rescue Lot from something simple. It's not just that they're in danger, but that they have been stolen, taken away, taken into slavery. The text doesn't say slavery, but it's a, it's a very simple concept in the ancient Near East. If they weren't going into slavery, they would have been killed. That's the only reason you take somebody from an event like this, is to get benefit from them, to make them your slave or to sell them to someone else. They're going off into slavery, and Abram brings them back. And the text is really clear. Look at verse 16. It wants us to, to recognize that he's not just been rescued. He's not just been delivered from danger. He's been brought back. Then he, Abram, brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. We see that, that the work of Abram in this text is one of bringing them back and not some of them, not a portion of them, Abram wasn't successful in getting some of the stuff back, but it tells us expressly all the possessions. His, salva his salvation, his saving work here, the rescue of Abram, is a complete rescue. In all of these things, we see the offspring of Abram that's been promised, Jesus Christ, who is our King. Again, and those of you who are with us for the first time, I don't mind quoting the Catechism, but I, I don't want you to think I quote it all the time, especially if you love that I'm quoting it. Um, I don't want to overpromise. But there's another Catechism that comes to mind as I'm preparing this week, and that is Catechism 26, the shorter Catechism. Speaking of the offices of Christ, you're, you're familiar with it. We've, uh, we've used it in our liturgy on Sunday evenings. How does Christ fulfill the office of prophet? or execute. Christ executes the office of king, not prophet. There's, there's prophet, priest, and king. King is the one we're focused on today. How does Christ execute the office of king? By subduing us to himself, by ruling and defending us, and in conquering all his and our enemies. That's what Abram is about in the text today, isn't he? Abram, this, in this text, is, is conquering the enemies defending, delivering Lot, his nephew. Okay, I, I get feedback from the staff regularly that if I'm not really clear about my outline, it's confusing. So we're in the third and final point this morning, and under that point, I have several applications. So, the first, what do we do with this? I mean, yes, there's Jesus. We see Jesus in the text. What do we do with this? First, we rejoice and give thanks. We shouldn't move on to anything else until we've done this. I'm reminded of the lepers who were healed by Christ, and having been healed, Christ says, now go to the priests and, and get them to declare you to be clean, and they turn and they run off to the priests. But only one of them comes back and says, thank you for what he has done. Christ has healed them from leprosy. We ought to often be moved to praise and thanksgiving when we consider the salvation that is ours. We are like Lot, those who were living in the world as those who were of the world but have been delivered by Christ 
from the world. One would imagine Lot was quite thankful to Abram that he came and delivered him. Second, be at peace. Peace can be a state of affairs or it can be a state of mind. As a state of mind, it's rooted not in your circumstances, but in a deeper, more lasting truth, the eternal truth that life, eternal life, is ours even now in Jesus Christ. And so that means that the circumstances around us that for the world are the source of turmoil, the the source of of all of the, the problems, all of the things they wrestle with and the sleepless nights, those circumstances, we might share in those circumstances. But we know something that is deeper, that is truer, that is eternal, that we belong to Christ, that we have life in Jesus Christ, and that that life cannot be taken from us, and that gives us a deep peace. We also need to remember who we are. Remember that as Christ wants, uh, that as one Christ has saved, you are not of this world. You have truth from the source and an example for living. You've heard it said in the movies, if not in life, you're a Bradley, and Bradleys don't do that. There's an identity in, in the family from which you come and to which you belong. Listen, we are Christians. We bear the name of Christ. We're called to live according to that identity. We are to remember who we are in Jesus Christ and act accordingly. Finally, this morning, we look forward. Have you ever been engaged in a task that was, was not something that, given a choice, you would probably be spending your time doing? Usually it's for your boss, right? I, I didn't look at you in your general direction, Sarah, on purpose when I said that. Sarah's the admin for the church. I'm often asking her to do things I don't want to do. In, in doing this, a lot of times we'll set a, a goal for ourselves. I mean, not just a goal to finish, but we'll promise ourselves some little reward, won't we? Uh, to stay focused, don't get up, don't turn left or right, don't do anything else, don't pull up that other tab on your, uh, your browser and start shopping for something, right? Stay focused on the task. I'm going to give myself X. I'm going to, to let myself get up, if you work from home, go into the kitchen and get a cookie, eat that cake or that ice cream, You see where my examples are going here, right? And you hold out on that thing, but that thing, the the anticipation of that reward is what keeps you focused. We're going to get finished, and I'm going to keep thinking. Don't get distracted, Matt. Don't get distracted. We're trying to get to the ice cream, right? It's a, a frivolous example. But in life, being left as those who are in the world but not of it, it's difficult It's not always pleasant. And in what might seem like a strange twist, the better we're doing at it, the less pleasant it may be. But we have this promise held out to us. Perfection. Life forever. Not just sinlessness in some sort of cold, judicial sense, but hearts that actually only want what God wants for eternity, fellowship with him, a true fellowship, a face-to-face fellowship with God. That's what's held out to us. 
And so often in the midst of the difficult circumstances that we experience, particularly when it's difficult because the work that we are about is difficult in the world, we ought to be often looking forward. Live in the now, but always remembering what we are going to. What God has done for us, the promises he has made, and how he will be faithful to keep them. Let's pray.